Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And this morning I'll read from 1 John 2, verse 26, through the third verse of chapter 3. beginning at 1 John 2 and verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, And just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him." Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Amen. Well, let's look to God in prayer and ask once again for his help as we come to the preaching of the Word of God today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can hear the Word of God preached today. We know there are many people in the world who have never heard it preached. There are many who have, who would love to be hearing it preached, but who are prevented for one reason or another, perhaps a war, perhaps imprisonment, perhaps the um, prohibition of churches to meet, as in some nations We have this privilege. Help us to make the most of it by the help and power of your Holy Spirit. Come and attend the Word of God as it is proclaimed with power, for we ask this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Around this time of the year, the fall of the year, I'm accustomed to seeing deer wander through my yard which usually happens about 350 or so days of the year, but this time of the year, it's deer with antlers following after deer without. And I know that, therefore, in the spring of next year, there will be little fawns wandering through the yard along with the does. Deer produce other deer. And also about this time of year, 
after I've made all my efforts to prevent or get rid of the crabgrass, I know that when I mow the lawn, I'm stirring up thousands of little crabgrass seeds. And in the spring of next year, they're not going to produce dandelions. They're going to produce crabgrass. And so it happens with human beings. We don't produce dogs or cats. We produce human beings. And the text is telling us that same principle works with God and in his kingdom. So as we look at our text today, which is verse 29 of chapter 2 through verse 3 of chapter 3, let's notice, first of all, the law of spiritual reproduction. And that's in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, and that would be God, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now here's one of those cases where you have the pronoun he and him. And I think in both cases we should think of it as being referring to God the Father. When it says he is righteous, it's, that's also true of Jesus Christ. And um, those who practice righteousness, however, when it says is born of him, always in the New Testament, when it talks about regeneration, being born again, we're born of God the Father. That's the way it's always presented. So I take this to mean God the Father. But as I said earlier in my introduction, there's a law of natural reproduction. We're told that in Genesis chapter 1, that the different plants bring forth seed, seed I should say, and they bring forth fruit, each according to their kind. A plant will produce the same kind of plant from its seed. And it's the same way with animals. And as I said, it's the same way with humans. We're told in Genesis chapter 5 about a son that Adam had after Cain and Abel. He had a son named Seth. And the Bible says that he was in his own likeness. He was in the likeness of Adam the father. When a man and a woman produce a child, it is always a human being. And the, the idea here, here is, in verse 29, that that principle works on a spiritual or a moral level as well. And we can say that's true with human beings. When two sinful parents bring forth a child ever since the fall, in fact, no children were brought forth by human parents other than after the fall, it's always a sinner a human being who is sinful by nature. But when God brings about the new birth, then, as it says here in verse 29, it is always a righteous person who results. Every single time. Every single time that someone is born again, he always becomes a righteous person person. Let's read that text again. If you know that he is righteous, that is God, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So if the father is righteous and he begets someone, then he is going to be a righteous person. We read back in chapter 1, Verses 5 and 6, this is the message which we have heard from him, God, 
and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is righteous. We're told that in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, or righteous, same word, to forgive us our sins. God is righteous. And then verse 6 of chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this is a note that has already been sounded. Now it's being put in different terms here in chapter 2, verse 29, that if someone is born of God who is righteous, then that person is also going to be righteous. He's going to practice righteousness. And if we see someone in this world practicing righteousness, living an upright, godly life, then it's unquestionable that that person has been born of God. There will always be a moral likeness if God begets someone. God is righteous and his children are all righteous. That's what we see in verse 29 of chapter 2. It's the law of spiritual reproduction. It always happens. But then secondly, let's notice, and this is in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, some results of spiritual reproduction. If God brings someone into this life, what are some things that result from that? Brings someone into spiritual life, makes them a righteous person through the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, causing them to be born again as a result of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, we'll notice four results of that that John mentions. First, there is wonder and joy in the heart of the Christian. That's the first part of verse 1. John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Many English versions follow that with something along these lines that, um, and so we are. I'll mention about that in a moment because it's not in the version that I'm reading, the New King James Version. John has mentioned in verse 29 this idea that believers are born of God. Anyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. It's talking about the new birth, what we call regeneration. He mentions that in verse 29, and that leads to his exclamation at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3. In effect, he's saying, this is amazing that we, sinful human beings, would actually become, that we would be called the children of God. So he says it this way, Behold what manner of love. And it's followed up then in most English versions with something along these lines, And so we are. In other words, this is real, John's saying. It's amazing, but it's real. We really are the children of God if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here. In other words, however remarkable the thought may be, if we're Christians, it's true that we really are children of the living God. So God's taking sinners as his children is a lavish expression of love on God's part. 
If a billionaire were walking down the street and decided to give you a million dollars, that would be a wonderful thing. I mean, it could be a, a huge snare to us, but let's assume that it will not be and that we'll just be able to pay off our mortgage and uh, buy a new car and give money to missions and that kind of... It would be a wonderful thing. But if that billionaire said, and besides this million dollars, that's just the beginning of what I want to give you. I'm going to make you my child. I'm going to make you my heir. Well, that's the idea. It's a lavish expression of love on God's part in making sinners his own children, making them sons of God. And that provokes this reaction of wonder and joy on our part. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. It gives us great wonder and it gives us joy that we can always then, because God never unsons uh, people, He doesn't ever make them no longer His children. Once He makes them His children, we can always rejoice in this great reality. But there's also a sobering result, and that's the second thing. The second result of spiritual reproduction is division in the world. It's the last part of verse 1. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And we're here when it says it did not know him, past tense. That is speaking about Jesus Christ, the Son. He was in this world, and John is saying while he was in this world, the world... In other words, not only most of the people in this world, but remember recently we've seen that the world, back when we looked at verse 15 of chapter 2, is this world system that is opposed to God. It's, that includes all the unbelievers in this world. They're opposed to God. They don't love Him. They didn't love Jesus. So therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. God has made a division in this world. There are the believers and there are the unbelievers. And the unbelievers are the majority. The vast number who are on the road that leads to destruction. Broad is that road and many people are on it. The majority of this world are on it. But there's a division then, a real division that God has brought about between Christians and the world. Believers and unbelievers. And he's done that by changing some of us, making us into different creatures, new creatures in Jesus Christ. I remember many years ago hearing Pastor Martin talk about um, a situation that he knew of, I think from some missionary. He read it or he heard it from his mouth about how he labored in a village in Africa, somewhat of a primitive, primitive village compared to uh, our life in the West. And the people in the village, whenever there was a baptism, would all come out to the river. And the Christians would be on one side of the river, and the unbelievers would be on the other side of the river. And the pastor who was doing the baptism would be in the middle of the river. It wasn't such a deep river that he couldn't stand. And whoever was going to be baptized would come out from the side of the river where the unbelievers were. And he would walk into the river to the pastor get dipped into the water and come out, and he'd go out on the other side. It's a wonderful picture of this division that God has made in this world. 
We all came into this world as unbelievers, sinners, as Scripture says in Colossians 1.21, alienated from God and enemies of Him in our minds. But He took some of us, He has taken some of us to this point, and brought us to faith in Christ, brought us to repentance for our sins, given us new hearts and made us new creatures who love God. But there's now this division between us and the world. That's the result. And this division is nothing new. We're told all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, at the time of the fall of man into sin, when God was addressing the serpent, the devil, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Jesus said in John 8, as we've seen recently, that all unbelievers have as their father, in a spiritual sense, the devil. But all believers have as their father, God. And God said, and this goes way back to Genesis, that he was going to put a division between those and there would be enmity between them. Or if you just look over at 1 John 3, verse 13, several verses down from where we are, John says it this way, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why shouldn't we marvel? Well, because this is the way it's been between believers and unbelievers ever since back in the, in the out, not in the garden, but back since man was put out of the garden. Back in the days of Adam and Eve, there was this enmity between believers and unbelievers. People talk about all the things that distinguish people from each other. It's a big topic of conversation in our generation here in the United States in the 21st century, but especially in recent months, all the things that divide us, especially things like there are racial divisions, political divisions, religious divisions, ethnic divisions, socioeconomic divisions. And there are people who want to make big things out of these divisions with the result that there's even greater division. But according to the Word of God, there is one very real and most significant division between people. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. In other words, we don't think of people on the basis of what we can see, like the color of their skin or their facial features, or where they were born, or what country they're from, or their parents were from, or what they do for a living, or how much money they have. We don't see people anywhere anymore according to the flesh, Paul says. He says we don't know Christ that way any longer. But then he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He says, we don't look at it the way we used to, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile. We just look at this one distinction among and between people. Do they believe in God through Jesus Christ or not? That's a division that God has put in this world. And when it says in verse 1 that the world does not know us, what does that mean then? It, does it mean that after you become a Christian, you have to reintroduce yourself to your next-door neighbor or he won't know who you are anymore? No. 
It means they don't understand what has happened to us. I don't know why that guy used to be fun, but now he isn't anymore. It means they don't view us in a scriptural light, in the light of the truth. It means they don't appreciate us for who we are and what God has done in our lives. And it means they don't love us because of what God has done in our lives. Instead, there's opposition. Let's go back to notice the reason for that in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Here we have the Lord Jesus the night before he was betrayed and put to death the next day. He's speaking to the apostles and he's giving them a warning. They knew they were to go out and preach the gospel. But he gives them this warning. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that's what lies behind what we read here. Jesus says, in, or John says in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John, therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Didn't understand who he really was, therefore doesn't understand who we are as his followers, why we would follow him. Doesn't look upon him favorably, and so because of him doesn't look upon us as Christians favorably. Doesn't love him, doesn't love us. That's the idea. And this division between us and the world is different from many other divisions that exist among men. There are racial divisions sometimes where people of one race hate people of the other, and it's mutual. National divisions where the same is true. Other kinds of divisions. But in this division... There is animosity. They don't know us. As John said in verse 13, the world hates you, but that animosity is one way. Remember what Jesus said, that we're to love our enemies. As a Christian, even if people do hate you, and even if it's a a strong hatred that they hold, and it turns into outright persecution, you have no license to repay them in kind with hatred for their hatred, evil speaking for their evil speaking, or harm for the harm they may give to you. No, Jesus said in Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. We're to be like our Lord, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, you should follow Christ's steps When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. But there is this division in the world. That's another fruit of our becoming children of God. Then there's a third fruit here, a third result, and that is hope in the life of the Christian. Hope in the life of the Christian. We see that in verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. That's our present experience. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. 
But we know that when He is revealed, and that's Jesus, when He comes again on the clouds in the day of judgment, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So we're children of God right now. That's the point of John in the first part of verse 3. We're called children of God, and we're not just called that. We really are the children of God. But what we're going to be yet is not known. We had a tech, uh, one of the stanzas in that hymn we sang just before the sermon that was along these lines. We're children of God now, but, but what we are yet to be has not yet been revealed. Just we know that we will be like Him. With His glorified body, we will be saints who are glorified. For we shall see Him as He is. Let me just make a number of observations briefly about this verse here, verse 2. The word hope, that's my heading here. We have hope in the life of the Christian. The word hope is not used in verse 2 there, but it is used in verse 3. That's where it comes from. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. So this is a hope. And the hope is what is described in verse 3, that one day all Christians will be just like Jesus. And we'll be able to look at each other and see the similarity, not only in the way we live, but in the way we look. Another observation is this, that hope has to do with the future. So we may have joy now because we're children of God. We also have hope, that's what this is talking about, as we look toward the future, what God will yet do with us. So we may uh, talk about hope that it will rain or that it will not rain. We don't talk about it in the past tense, about what God has already done. We don't say, I hope it doesn't rain yesterday. Hope is always about the future. And it's always something we want to have happen, and therefore we desire it. And so we hope about what God will do in the future. But also in the Bible, the meaning of hope, as you know, is different from the way we commonly use it. In the Bible, we use it about things we know. We don't know for sure it'll rain tomorrow or not. So we say, I hope it does, or I hope it doesn't rain. But in the Bible, we hope about things we know. And that's why John says there in the middle of verse 2, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One of the great themes in John's gospel as Christians, we don't say, well, I sure hope this happens someday to me because I'm, I'm a Christian. No, we know it will happen. But as we look to the future, it's a hope that we're looking forward to. It doesn't mean we don't know it will happen. We're confident it will happen, but we want it to happen, and we're living for that day. And the particular thing we know is that when Christ comes, we will be like him. The world doesn't understand what we already are, children of God. Even we don't understand. This is the point yet. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't know that what it exactly will be, but we do know it will be like our Savior. And this hope is important to the Christian, especially in light of the last part of verse 1, that there's this division in the world. We face animosity. We can even face persecution. Sometimes the division turns into outright persecution. We need this hope. 
This hope goes beyond simply a positive attitude and beyond simply an optimistic outlook about the future. And that brings us to the fourth thing, the fourth result of this are being born again, and that is purification in the life of the Christian. Purification in the life of the Christian. That's verse 3. It says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So, you're a Christian and you have this hope. And you want to realize that hope. You want to realize it. You want to actually be there at the right hand of Jesus Christ in the day of judgment and be made like Him. You want to see Him, and when you see Him, become like Him. But you know that there are many scriptures that say things along these lines, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That is, we'll see Him in a positive way. See him and be changed into his likeness. See him and be with him forever. And delight in seeing his face. So let's notice three things about verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Our hope is in Christ. We're going to see him as he is. He is pure. We want to be like him. The subject here is sanctification. The language is purification. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. It's talking about the cleansing of sin on a practical, day-to-day, experiential basis. It's not just talking about the forgiveness of sins that makes us righteous in a judicial sense so that no sins are held against us. It's an experiential matter. That's why it talks about purifying himself, something you can do, something you and I must do as Christians. In other words, there's a divine side of our being made holy, and then there's a human side of it. The divine side is expressed in Jesus' prayer in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, Father, you have to make my disciples holy, or they'll never be holy. That's the divine side. Without God working, it'll never happen. But there's also the human side of it. Colossians 3, verse 5. Therefore, you, that's the implied subject, you put to death your members that are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And you might say, well, which is it then? Is it God that makes us holy, or do we make ourselves holy? Well, what's the scriptural answer? God has to do it. If he doesn't, it won't happen. And the other side of the scriptural answer is you have to do it, or you're in grave danger. You have to put to death your members on the earth. You have to, in the words of verse 3 here, purify yourself. It fits in with this law of spiritual reproduction, doesn't it? You have to do it. Why? Because everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And we can flip that around. Everyone who is born of him practices righteousness. He purifies 
himself. It fits in with all of John's tests. Are you practicing righteousness? Then you're born of him. Are you purifying yourself? Ah, then this hope belongs to you, that you will see him and be made like him in the end. Purification in the life of the Christian. Let me give you four practical lessons as a result of what we've seen in this text. The first one is this, regeneration, that is being born again, and sanctification, that is being made holy in your life, always go together. The one note that comes out of this text, especially with verse 29, is if you're born again, then you are going to be living a holy life. You're going to be living a godly life. You're going to practice righteousness. John has made this point a number of times already. He's not done. He's going to keep doing it throughout this epistle. He switches up the wording. He switches up the logic. That's what we have here. But it's the same point. And this time his statement is, if you are born again, to use that common language in our generation, if you are a born again Christian, then you will be like your father in the way you live your life. If you are a Christian, you will live like one and you will look like one. And people who can behold your life will be, especially true Christians, will be able to figure it out by their fruits. You shall have a decent guess about who they are, right? By their fruits, you will know them. Second, God has affected a real division in the world. Just going over the ground we've already seen. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. It's a fruit of His saving work. He has reached down, as I said. He has renewed some people. Not, anyone, not everyone. Not most of the people in this world. But He's renewed some of them. He's cleaned them up. And since the rest of the world is still captive to sin, still in love with their sins, there's a problem. John will write about it later in this chapter. It's what led to the death of Abel at the hand of his brother Cain because Cain saw that Abel's works were righteous and he hated him and he killed him. God has affected that real division in the world. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And that sword will even divide family member from family member. You may be a young Christian and you may hope to be such a good and loving Christian that people actually will not hate you. You're going to live the Christian life in a better way. And especially, you aren't going to say offensive things like it seems Pastor Chansky so often says from that pulpit. I mean, I think people would really like him if he didn't do that kind of stuff. Jesus said it will happen. It's never going to happen that you live such a godly and loving life that people will not hate you. It's not good that people hate Christians. It's sin. It's wicked. But God ordained it. In fact, remember how Jesus said, Woe to you when all men 
speak well of you. God has effected a real division in the world. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we have cause for constant joy and hope. First, as we consider what God has made us, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And we are. That is what we are by God's grace. And it's true, if you're a Christian, once God makes you a Christian, every single day of the rest of your life. In fact, every single moment of the rest of your life, it is true. And that is a cause for constant joy. You may be discouraged. You may be discouraged with yourself due to your sins, due to your failures. You wanted to please God. You wanted to do this right, and you blew it. You may be discouraged because of your lack of progress, not only in the Christian life generally, but especially in that area you're trying to mortify your sins, and you're concentrating on it and focusing on it, but it's not happening. And you may be discouraged because people don't understand you, and maybe they even hate you, and maybe they even persecute you. Maybe you lost your job at one time because of your stand for Christ. Here's what you need to remember God sees all that. But if you're a Christian, He sees you as His child. And He bestows upon you all the benefits of one of His children, kind of like what we read in Psalm 46, that He protects you, and He cares for you, and He has affection for you. He loves you as His child, even though you sin. And He gives you gifts. And He's holding the best of His gifts for later. He always sees you as His child. You have afflictions in your life. You have sorrow. You have pain. You have fears. But God, your heavenly Father, is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Your dad or your mom used to say something like this. Mommy will make it all better. Your heavenly Father says, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things will have passed away. All because you are his child. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. We have cause for constant joy, but we also have cause for constant hope as Christians as we consider what God will make us one day. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. God will one day make us just like Jesus Christ. I'll confess my carnality. I told this to the young brother who was praying on Wednesday night. He was praying near the end of the prayer meeting. 
And at one point he said he was looking forward to the day when God would enable us to worship without, and I literally, the first word that came into my mind was masks. Because I'd been sitting there for an hour and a half and I thought, that will be wonderful, won't it? But it wasn't. He wasn't so carnal as I was. He said, without sin. What a blessed thought, brethren. And that's going to be true above all the things that will be true about us when we see Jesus and are made like him. Because if I look at my life, if I look at your life, many times it does not seem possible that that could happen. It would literally take a miracle on the day that you see Jesus God will work that miracle. Amen. 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 Yes. Now hold on to that thought. In fact, hold it till the day you die. But right now, I mean just for one other minute, my fourth and final practical lesson is this. Our hope leads to or results in holiness of life. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have this hope, make no mistake about it, if you have this hope, it will move you to purify yourself. It will. Say, but pastor, you're making it sound like it's automatic. Because I've tried. And it's not happening in my life. It doesn't seem like it. Well, it is automatic in the sense that it will happen, and it always does happen with every child of God. But it's not automatic in the sense that there's no effort, no sweat, no pain, no cost. It doesn't just happen by snapping your fingers or going to bed at night. And saying, I read a verse about sanctification. I hope I wake up in the morning sanctified. It's not how it happens. Remember, there's that human element. And it works like this. Here is the Christian hope that we will see Jesus and we will be like him. Now, verse 3, everyone who has that hope purifies himself. It works like this. Do I want that? Do I want to see Jesus someday and have him smile upon me and be transformed into his likeness in the twinkling of an eye? Yes, I do. Well, I am, am I willing to fight for that? Yes, I am. That's how it works. Am I willing to admit and confess my sins? Yes, because I need to be forgiven of my sins and I need to be cleansed of my sins. Well, am I willing to cut off my right hand and to gouge out my right eye? Am I willing, as John says, to not love this world? Yes, because that's the deal. That's the Christian life. Am I willing that, to do that? All that for the next 50 years if it's necessary? Falling in pain and in shame and having to get up and confess and do it all over again? Yes, I am. Why? Because I want to see Jesus. And I want to be like Him. And I want to be with Him forever 
and ever and ever. May God put that yearning in all of our souls. Amen.